whenever in life any notable, memorable event happens, there are a number of internal experiences that occur involving different regions of the brain. And uh, it's worthwhile actually understanding some of this as it will set up tonight's topic. The events, which could be a threat or an opportunity or a notable experience, what some psychologists, clinical psychologists might call the stimuli, I'm just going to call it the event. Let's say one of our ancestors was hunter and gatherer and they were picking berries from a bush and then suddenly out of the blue a snake lashed out at them and tried to bite them and that would be the event and then there's the arousal the physiological activation that would occur which is pulling one's hand back trying to escape the snake and then there would be two other experiences there would be an emotional expression, perhaps shouting, a yelp, uh, a look of shock in the face, and there would be a thought, holy crap, I almost got bit by a snake, what the, why didn't anybody tell me this bush had snakes, etc. So, the, right there, in the arousal or the activation, the emotion and the thought or the interpretation of what happened, we have three different significant regions of the brain in control and all doing their various separate tasks to help us survive. The first is the physiological reaction, the jumping, the getting away. If you hear a bear in the woods starting to run, if you see uh, something hurling at you, uh, bringing your hands up to protect yourself. The survival circuits that activate those responses are extremely fast. They're activated by the midbrain and the noble laureate Daniel Kahneman calls them the fast circuits. They bypass thought. They're faster, much faster than cognition. They occur first. And then the next thing that happens in this series of events is the emotion, the cry, the look of shock on the face, the yelp, the body language that's not necessary for survival, but the, the nonverbal signals that communicate to the world that something important is happening. That's what an emotion is. It's a nonverbal marker to other people telling them that something that affects our survival has occurred. It's largely controlled by the right hemisphere and some of the lower regions as well of beneath their subcortex and cortex in the right hemisphere. And then finally there's the interpreter, the storyteller. After you've had the cry, the, you've started, your, the awareness is jumpy or shocked um, and you've moved then there's the story we add on to make sense of the experience. Now, the interpreter's job is very often 
to turn an important experience into a lesson. What is a lesson? A lesson is a little moral, a little instruction that we rely on so that the threat or the dangerous experience won't happen again. So, for example, when we walk in the woods, we reach our hand blindly into a bush to pick berries and then a snake almost bites us. The story might will be, well, next time I'll look. First I'll shake a, a, uh, a piece of wood in the bush. I don't know what somebody would do. I'm, <laughs> I'm totally not an owl. I camped once in my life in sixth grade, and I think I wept the entire night. <laughs> but I, I would come up with some lesson, right, uh, that I would walk away with, something that would turn it into uh, a, um, a kind of instructive, note so that hopefully the same thing wouldn't occur again. So in life, the interpreter not only makes sense and turns it into a story so that we can uh, whittle away all of experience into a story that we can carry with us, but hopefully a lot of the stories we build from life are in some way um, useful to protect us. But then there are times in life where important events happen where there's no possible way to come up with a story that in any way will help us in the future. Virtually every single uh, attachment disruption, whether we lose uh, a, uh, a member of our family to death or illness or uh, we go through a really traumatic breakup or we get excluded from a social group, or uh, we have extreme struggles and family relationships. All of the major attachment issues don't and aren't meant to be converted into nice little lessons. We're actually meant to have emotional experiences to process and change what Bowlby called our internal working models, which are our expectations, our emotional expectations of other people and whether and to what degree our needs will be met and whether we feel safe to express ourselves or not. So in recent contemporary clinical psychology, it's interesting that the focus of the therapeutic encounter between the person in therapy and the therapist has moved from cognition or how we think to emotions, creating a safe space where people can express their emotions. The idea being that a lot of the suffering we have in life doesn't happen because we interpret our experience incorrectly, but happens because we interrupt the emotional response and immediately try to make sense, turn it into a story, figure it out, make it go away. We try to t turn all loss, all interpersonal uh, conflicts or disappointments into a neat little bow. Well, that'll teach me to date people from Maine, or that will... <laughs> teach me to lend money to a friend, or that'll teach me to trust my feelings with my family, or whatever. We want to essentially 
get rid of the emotions as quickly as possible by jumping over the emotional processing to the final part, which is the story bit, the figuring it out, interpreting it, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. Um, increasingly, emotion-focused therapists, people like Vanegi, Alan Shore, Dan Siegel, Diana Fosha, Bruce Ecker, Leslie Greenberg, there's so many of them now in the last 20 years who've become really, really uh, profound, uh, offered profound modalities for treatment, and they all boil down to uh, some very basic observations, which is there's adaptive functioning and there's maladaptive functioning in adult life. So what does adaptive functioning look like? Adaptive functioning is when I have an emotion, I feel confident that I can express it, and I've located people in my life that are emotionally tolerant who listen and mirror back that emotion empathetically. They get it. They say, I, I know what it's like to be sad, frightened, lonely, depressed. Uh, or they, in some way, welcome my emotion and empathize with it. And then as a result, I have what's called positive secondary emotions, which are, I feel a sense of intimacy, I feel a sense of connection, belonging, and then because I have an emotional bonding with other people, I feel empowered to explore the world and take risks and embrace new challenges in my life because I know people emotionally have my back. People telling me they have my back doesn't do crap. People emotionally signaling by listening to my feelings, hearing them, mirroring them, creates a feeling, an emotional feeling, which registers in my right hemisphere, which tells me implicitly that I'm safe in the world, that I have a secure base, and that I can go out and take risks. I can become a basket weaver, if I so choose, which would be stupid of me to do, but I could theoretically try to do that. Now, there's maladaptive. Maladaptive is I have the same core emotion, shock, grief, loneliness, anger, sadness, surprise, jealousy, envy, uh, disappointment, frustration. I have these emotional core experiences. I signal them to the people that just happen to be around me who give me intolerant, dismissive, shaming, rejecting, disinterested uh, responses. They don't mirror the emotion. And then I'm left with negative secondary emotions, which are feeling cut off, alone, isolated, unprotected. And there I move into what's called defended living, defended, where I don't take risks, I don't open my experience up to others, and then I start developing uh, internal defenses, what Freud and Anna Freud called ego defenses, which are ways to defend and push away those emotions which I believe other people will reject me for. All those impulses all those needs, those desires, those emotions that I feel that other people don't support, don't mirror, don't acknowledge, don't accept, I will, to 
stay connected with people because human beings are social beings and we will do anything to stay connected with the people around us, we will abandon those core, natural, authentic, spontaneous emotions. What do we do? Well, we do lots of things. We, one, repress. Repress simply means focus the mind elsewhere. If I should feel lonely, I might focus immediately on uh, Facebook, post something not very important, in the hopes that I got lots of, lots of likes, and that will give me the illusion that there are people in my life, and it will trigger a little dopamine, so for a little while I won't feel as lonely, but then I'll go back to feeling lonely. It's just a, it's just a repressive, repressive cover-up. Um, reaction formation is the technical term for people-pleasing. When I'm around other people, instead of expressing an emotion that I think will lead to rejection, like sadness or fear, I'll, I will try to, in my case, man up and try to present uh, self-assured confidence. That's what I was taught by my father and all the men that were around when I grew up. Um, some people, if they are unable to fulfill their needs in their social networks, will develop grandiose fantasies, the rock and roll star or movie star in our mind, where everybody cares and loves us as a compensation for unmet needs in our lives, where we don't feel seen by others, we don't feel noted or cared for. Intellectualization is the tendency to whenever we have a feeling, immediately try to figure it out, solve it, rationalize it away, get rid of it through thought. Negative projection is when we experience something in ourselves we don't like, we instead look for that emotion or feeling or impulse in other people, and then we don't like them for it. <laughs> for example, uh, the man who's struggling with same-sex impulses will look around for gay men and dislike them. The person who's struggling with know-it-all tendencies will see other know-it-alls and hate them. The person who doesn't like their own dependence or need and has grown up to prioritize being avoidant will hate other people who express needs and so forth. So negative projection is a very common way that we try to repress our own authentic emotions. And so, um, we develop uh, self-delusion, which is we, over time, these processes of repression become so automatic that we become foreign from our own real core needs. Many of our most uh, oldest and most fragile and vulnerable feelings remain buried or uh, swapped for other emotions and behaviors that uh, we've trained ourselves to act out because we've been taught that that's what will get us appreciation from other people. The Buddha called this asavas, 
the Buddha noted this tendency as well. He said that we all have internal experiences that are difficult and challenging, and rather than attend to them, we tend to flow outwards into the world seeking any kind of distraction, sensual pleasures, achievements, trying to become something different or better. We get caught up in worrying what other people think about us, accumulating goods, anything to distract us from the internal feelings that are going on. So, of course, a very important part of the Dharma was to create and give us the tools to help us return and reintegrate with those buried, deeply suppressed, deeply unacknowledged, unattended feelings that we've been running from. If we don't do this work, a lot of things will we can expect to happen. When we don't attend to, or when we continue to repress certain feelings or needs or emotions, we will suffer at certain points of our life from insomnia. We will have anxiety or panic attacks. We will have addictive binges to get rid of the feelings, such as food or shopping, anything to get rid of the emotions when they start to present themselves. These are all maladaptive coping strategies to make the return of the repressed go away. So, the Buddha, again and again and again, used one phrase more than any other to describe what spiritual practice does. He said that the Dharma reveals what was concealed, carries a lamp into the darkness of the mind so that those with eyes can see the hidden forms. What do we think those hidden forms are that the light we bring into our minds reveal? I think it's pretty clear what he's indicating here. And another place he uses the repeated phrase, with sustained internal awareness, inner darkness is destroyed and the mind illuminates. So what he's calling for is revealing those shadowy, what, the Jung, what Jung called the shadow self, what Freud called the repressed, what many other psychologists have other names for, like Bruce Ecker, emotional beliefs, we're trying to return to all those impulses, desires, and needs which we have been trained to push aside. So some of the tools I'd like to go over that are available to us. The first is Viveka, and it's the idea that to get access to repressed and to reconnect with what we've shunted aside, we need to go someplace different than the places that we're all overly familiar with, like our apartments or our workplaces. Uh, the Buddha said in, it's a three-part process, starting with kaya viveka, which means literally going away. Now, why is this? We all know 
our apartments and our workplaces and certain other places so well that we no longer take in any information about them. We're no longer uh, aware. When we try to reconnect with um, old, painful emotions, they'll be very, very challenging and uncomfortable at first. We'll feel the throat tighten, the chest will feel hollow, the stomach will contract. There'll be literal physiological discomfort and we'll do anything we can not to do it. So if we're in places where we're surrounded by iPhones, tablets, laptops, before we know it, we'll seek a distraction. On the other hand, go in some place where there are not distractions, where there are just enough soothing stimuli around us, creates a safe place where we can hold the discomfort but yet, at the same time, not be distracted from it. I'll give you an example. Uh, somebody I worked with years ago went through sudden, very, very painful loss of um, a partner. And um, he couldn't mourn uh, this loss in his apartment. It was too overwhelming. Whenever the, uh, the feelings, the grieving would come up, it was so overwhelming that he would immediately numb out, numb the body, depersonalize, dissociate, literally go off into fantasy as a way to get rid of uh, just daydream. Anything not to feel the body, the grief, the pain. And so he found, though, when he would go to this certain spot by the water and lie on the grass and feel the sun on his body, he actually could grieve and cry hysterically and open to the feelings without fantasizing, without trying to escape into thought or dissociative daydreams. He needed to be at a place that was just soothing enough that he could hold the pain and be with it and process it. And that was how he grieved and how he was able to come to terms with the loss and integrate it into his life. So um, there's a big difference between self-soothing and self-numbing. Self-numbing is when we try to completely escape an emotion when it starts to appear. Sadness or loneliness, we immediately daydream fantasize, turn on a laptop, watch Netflix, binge on food, shop, anything to get rid of the feeling. That's what a self-numbing activity does. Self-soothing creates just enough soothing stimuli that you can be with the feelings as they arise, not get rid of them. So, for example, yoga is self-soothing Shooting up heroin is self-numbing. <laughs> Lying in a boat in a river while opening to whatever arises is self-soothing, whereas getting drunk, uh, binge-watching House of Cards, that's self-numbing. I think you get the idea, but I have to... It's my job to give examples.
<laughs> so the Buddha said that the process goes kaya viveka, which is withdrawal, chitta viveka, which means let go of all the mental distractions, and then upeka viveka, which means turn inwards and feel whatever needs to be feel, felt. And he summarizes it in the Viveka Sutta as, as one enters the forest, the mind remains still outside, distracted by memories of the world. Over time, though, the dust and dirt that have accumulated in the mind are cleared, and with awareness, the distractions are shaken off, and the mind becomes clear. So that's the process. Going to a place that's soothing, calming, not distracting, uh, turning away from the thoughts, the memories, the plans, and just opening to what needs to be connected with, with whatever presents itself. The second practice is whenever there's excessive self-justification, self-criticism, or resentment, I like to do um, a practice that I developed, which is based somewhat on a practice called RAIN. Whenever I've gone through an uncomfortable interpersonal experience, I'll hold an image of the person in my mind, but I won't repeat the events. Generally, the first thing that people do when they have resentments is they repeat the interactions and what they should have said as opposed to what they did say, and they visualize different, then I would have, well, I could have said this, but then they would have said that, but then I would have said this back, but then they would have said but then I would have kind of, yeah, that would have been great, that would have been great, you know, and so playing it out, which accomplishes nothing other than reactivate the cut-off anger. What I'll do is I'll hold the image in my mind and just ask, how does it feel not to be heard? How does it feel not to be seen? How does it feel not to be taken into consideration? Open-ended questions meant to activate the emotions rather than get rid of the emotions. Emotions can be brought up if we ask questions that are very open-ended and we hold very triggering images. If we stay with the body, especially the areas of the body, the face, the throat, the chest, and the belly, which are the vagal vagus nerve where the right hemisphere expresses emotions, if we stay there, eventually some tight contraction or small constriction will appear. And then I'll just say welcome to it, and I'll encourage the somatic expression of the emotion to spread. And I'll pay attention to the feeling in the mind of heaviness or jumpiness or sadness or whatever. And I'll just stay with the experience and welcome it. And then I'll eventually nurture it and say, it's okay, you're allowed to feel that way. I won't abandon you. I won't reject you. I'll find people that can tolerate you. Finally, Yoniso Manasikara, which is the Buddha's uh, language for appropriate attention. There's a lot of similar practices now in therapy, such as coherence therapy, which are almost identical. Essentially, the Buddha suggests in this teaching that every single symptom we have in our life that is uncomfortable uh, is an, an expression of an underlying unconscious need that hasn't been addressed. So, for example, 
worry. Nobody likes to worry. We all wish we wouldn't worry. And yet we worry. Why do we do that? Well, the unconscious need is to feel prepared, to not be caught off guard. We believe when we worry and figure out or visualize catastrophic events that might or may more likely will not happen, that we'll be prepared. We won't be suddenly surprised. So worrying answers the unconscious need to feel secure. And worry generally comes up more often in life when we feel disconnected from support, when we don't feel a lot of people care or are connected with us emotionally. So rather than trying to push away worry, push away the symptom, we connect with the underlying emotion that's been buried, the need to feel prepared, the lack of security, the lack of connectedness, and then we address it. We reflect on all the people that care about us, all the people that are connected with us, all the people that would be available if we suddenly stumbled upon a bad situation in our life. Procrastination is the symptom manifested by the unconscious fear that some activity will lead to abandonment and rejection. So people very often will say, oh, I need to get a new job, or I need to travel, or I need to be more creative, I need to write a book, I need to do this or that. But then when it comes time to do it, they procrastinate, they stall, they look at Amazon for hours, watch, again, TV shows forever. I'm not saying the TV's bad. I love Mr. Robot, by the way. Anybody watch that? Okay, <laughs> All right, anyway. So procrastination protects us from taking risks that we believe might lead to rejection, might lead to abandonment. So we grew up in families where uh, that prioritized money. We might, when it comes time to acting out our creative selves, we might procrastinate or stall. Or if we've come to find the people at work to be like a surrogate family, we might stall getting a new job, even though we feel our work is a dead end. Again, because there's unconscious needs that procrastination is meeting. So the key is never to approach any symptom, whether it's addiction, whether it's panic or anxiety, as if there's something wrong with us. Every single symptom is an expression of an emotional need that has not been addressed. And if you can ask yourself, what would I feel if that symptom went away? Then we can get an idea of what it's concealing. I'll give you an example. The person who every night, who's lonely, who binges on... Uh, ice cream, asking them, what would you feel, ask, they could ask themselves, what would I feel if I couldn't eat ice cream? If they're really honest, the answer will be, well, I'd feel lonely and untaken care of. I'd feel the absence of people in my life. So suddenly we realize that the food eating or binging is not a weakness of character. It's not a sign of something wrong with them. It's simply an unconscious attempt to address feelings of loneliness and lack of care in life. 
So, closing the eyes or looking at the ground in front and somewhat akin to somebody who's, I suppose, fishing, reeling back in a line, reeling your awareness back in from the world to the body. So you're pulling all that awareness of the stuff that's going on around you, which then can tangle up our minds with all kinds of external situations over which we have absolutely no control, and very often don't really matter that much as well. And so we're bringing back awareness, reeling it back into the body where we do actually have influence and what does matter. So we're rebalancing awareness. Many of us can live much of our lives without any sense of how we're breathing, the feelings, even our basic emotional states as they arise and pass. And when we don't know how we're feeling or breathing, our body posture, anything like that, then there's all these different factors influencing our decisions and choices in ways of which we're unaware. Sometimes in stressful situations we can develop a lot of peace simply by returning awareness and addressing all the stress that's built up in the chest, the belly, the shoulders, the face, and so forth. So let's start the process. Take a nice full in-breath through the nose if you like and lift the shoulders up like you're trying to touch the ears and then holding it and then as we release the breath through the mouth, drop the shoulders. That's great. And of course this is these are just suggestions, so do what feels appropriate for you. And then the second breath, pulling in the belly, really tight, and then releasing with the out breath. And then the third breath, squinching the muscles of the face, making an ugly pinched face. Nobody's looking, so go right ahead, squinch the muscles really tight, and then as you breathe out, soften the muscles in the face, allow the jaw to relax, soften the micro-muscles around the eyes, and then take a survey of your body, an internal survey of the sensations and just take this time to really make yourself feel comfortable. So you might notice that clothing feels too tight, or your hair might be pulled too taut, or your legs might be folded in an awkward position, or anything you 
really be indulgent with your ease and comfort. And then, for the rest of the meditation, if you notice that physical pain arises, before you change a position, see if you can figure out a way to do it in such a way that you won't distract the people sitting around you, either through unnecessary movement or through creating any sounds or noises. So you don't actually have to keep yourself frozen, but if you do feel the need to reposition yourself, just consider the tranquility of those nearby and try to create as little sound as possible, just as you would prefer them not to create any sound. So for the first part of the meditation, we're simply going to be developing a settled, peaceful mind as much as that is available to us at this time. The way we do that is by keeping in mind an anchor. An anchor is an object That's really not necessarily all that interesting, not that dramatic, but you can hold it in awareness and use it as just like an anchor for a boat, something that keeps your mind from being blown about by thoughts and memories and worries. So it keeps you anchored to the present moment. And of course, one of the most popular anchors is knowing whether we're breathing in or out or pausing by the sensations of the breath and the body. In other words, you can feel the air at the tip of the nose or the chest expanding and contracting or the belly expanding and contracting. Another anchor, if you don't like working with the breath, is hearing the sounds, the air conditioning, the sounds from the street, the room, or contact sensations, feeling yourself sinking into the cushion, the clothes, making contact with skin, the lights flickering behind closed eyelids, etc. You can repeat a very simple phrase in the mind, may I feel peaceful, may all beings feel peaceful, or may I feel loved, may all beings feel loved. Choose your own very simple phrase, setting an intention to develop inner peace. But finally, you can hold a very simple, static image what the Buddha called a nimitta, and that could be a candle, image of a candle, or a shape, color, perhaps a place you know very, very well. The anchor, 
just holding it in awareness, not needing to push anything away, just knowing whether you're breathing in or out or your metaphrase or the sound. So we'll move into silence for a while, and what will eventually happen is, of course, attention, which is used to following dramatic, changing threats and opportunities, will eventually find it difficult to sustain awareness on your anchor, and it will go chasing after thoughts or memories or plans. And that's entirely natural, normal. There's nothing to be frustrated about. Simply when you wake up from a memory or a thought, feel good that you're developing mindful awareness. Very, very patiently and gently bring your awareness back, feeling good about your practice. begin to use the anchor as a way to relax even further, so try to make the out-breaths as long and smooth as possible, or recite the meta-phrase in such a way that it's soothing and calming, adding appropriate image, or simply relax into all the sensations available to you without any resistance.
you can let go of the obligation to hold the anchor, bring your awareness to the front of the body, the belly, chest, throat, and face, which is connected by a single set of nerves that display feelings and emotions very clearly. And just allow yourself to stay present while you note how the belly, chest, throat, and face feel. But eventually a thought, a memory, perhaps a plan about tonight or the future, a conversation you've had, something that's not actually present will rise in the mind. And when this happens, don't push it away nor identify with it and essentially inhabit the memory. Just notice how every mental experience affects the areas of the body that register emotions. This is a practice in the oldest suttas of the Dharma called awareness of feelings and emotions. Vedana Nusati, Chitta Nusati. What we're learning is how our thoughts, our plans, all of the cognition, how does it affect us emotionally? We're peering into the somatic experience beneath all the thinking. So you don't need to push away thoughts, you don't need to inhabit them and let them take you away from the present. Just notice whatever thought wants your attention. Allow it to give you a basic topic and then see, oh, when I have this thought, does my stomach contract or does it soften? Does my chest tighten or relax? Do my shoulders release or do they get stiff? Does my forehead tighten?
Also, we're reaching the time where we'll begin the transition from the meditation. And first, it's always a wonderful practice to cultivate some reflection of the benefit of your practice. It's most worthy of reflecting on is that a meditation doesn't have to be easy to be beneficial both psychologically and physically. Studies show that the simple task of closing your eyes, not reacting to stimuli around you, turning mindful awareness inwards towards physical sensations, just that has a great number of benefits, not just in reducing blood pressure, reducing firing of different regions of the brain that are hypervigilant, but it also just has the added benefit of developing a source of ease that doesn't require consuming the world's resources or putting us in conflict or competition with other people. And so our practice, while of multiple benefits to us, is also a benefit to those around us. It's not addictive in a bad way. It doesn't exploit or harm anyone. And so your practice is blameless. And there are very few activities in the world that are absolutely blameless. So it's worth treasuring those that are available. When you hear the sound of the bowl, it's my request that rather than opening your eyes and looking around the room, which will simply result in pushing awareness of the body and feelings into the background, that you just first open your eyes and look at the ground in front of you and integrate the visual stimuli of sight into an awareness that can also accommodate body, feelings, emotions. In other words, balancing inside and outside, not allowing sight to pull your mind entirely outside of the body. If we can cultivate a balanced awareness, it's of so many benefits in life.